2: Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Dana Berkowitz, Dr. Elroy Winsor and Dr. C. Winterhan, editors of Male Feminities, published by NYU Press in 2023. Male femininities represents a nuanced, critical collection of essays that highlight the extent to which male femininities are neither an imitation of femaleness nor an emptying of masculinity. The contributions focus on both gay and straight men, transmasculine and genderqueer people in their construction and performance of femininity, Thereby revealing the possibilities that open up when we critically examine femininity without women. The chapters cover a range of topics, including drag queens, cosmetic enhancements, trans fertility, and gender nonconforming childhoods. Male femininities illuminates what happens when we decouple femininity from female bodies, and how even the smallest cracks and fissures. In the normative order can disrupt challenge and in some cases reaffirm our existing sex gender regime dr berkowitz dr windsor dr han welcome to new books and gender studies i usually start this by reading brief author bios but would you mind introducing yourselves to help folks get familiar with your voices so they know who's speaking
3: where more than happy to I am Dana Berkowitz, and I'm an associate professor of sociology and women's gender and sexuality studies at Louisiana State University, and I received my Ph.D. in sociology from the University of Florida. And um, I have uh, written about um, about drag queens, about uh, gay men's experiences with parenting, um, and more recently about um, Botox and cosmetic enhancements.
1: Hi, I'm C. Winter-Hahn, and I'm a professor of sociology at Middlebury College. I received my Ph.D. at The University of Washington, and I've written about racism in gay communities. And I am Elroy
0: Windsor. I am a professor of sociology at the University of West Georgia. I got my PhD at Georgia State University, and my research has focused on trans people's access to healthcare services, as well as cisgender and transgender people's experiences with surgical body modifications.
2: Welcome, and thank you for being here. To get us started, uh, could you tell us how did this book come about, or uh, as I like to say, it, uh, what's your book's origin story?
3: Sure thing. I can I can talk about that. Um, so this book actually started many, many, many years ago. It started off um, through an email exchange on the Sociologists for Women in Society uh, listserv. And I was teaching a class on men and masculinities, and I sent out an email asking if anybody had any suggestions for readings on female masculinities that were More sociological than Halberstam's work because at that point that was really um, all that I had seen, and so at that point um, a few people responded, um, one of whom was Michael Kimmel, and we had an exchange over email, and that was basically the inception of this book. He said um, I'd always that he said that he had always wanted to edit a volume um, on male femininities and asked if I was interested, and so. We then sent out a, um, a call for for uh, proposals um, and we solicited contributors. And, um, oh, I'm sorry. Prior to that, we actually developed the proposal and, um, and then we sent out a call and um, the project was well underway. And then that year, um, for re- multiple reasons, Kimmel stepped down from the project and I brought in um, Elroy and Chang Suk, and um, the project sort of moved forward from there, um, and we decided to go into a a new direction in terms of um, bringing in a a scholar of um, trans studies, and that's where Elroy came in, and then a, a scholar of um, queer studies, of um, queer of color studies, and so um, that's sort of the inception of the project. It started off with me and a different editor, and then um, we brought on new editors and went in a few different directions.
2: As you note here, and the volumes contributions show, there is no easy or straightforward answer to this question, but I'll ask you to provide um, some definition or a working definition for male femininities, starting by why you use femininities plural.
1: I think I could address the second part of that question. Uh, as we were working on this, it dawned on us that uh, that feminities, particularly male feminities, um, span a wide range of different types of, of beliefs, of different types of performances, of different types of, of ways of, of being in the world and ways of seeing the world. And so it wasn't Uh, as we noted earlier, an absence of masculinity or rejection of it, or even the embrace of the femininity that we might associate with women. But that uh, there's sort of multiple different thing altogether from um, just what we might normally and think about when we think about femininity. And that there are multiple ways that men engage with with femininities in order to, I suppose, um, perform or embrace or live um, outside of what is considered a, a more traditional masculine way of being? I really
2: uh, loved the w- way you all are articulating this here. It's something that has informed my research, but also my teaching. So there's several, I, I, it's, I'm having a hard time figuring out which chapters to assign this and next semester. So thank you all for putting this fantastic book together. And I wanted us to talk about the section because that that's something I always, uh, it's a struggle that I always have when I'm talking to authors or, or editors of um, collections, right? Because each uh, chapter here is fascinating. I wish we could... Talk about all of them, but since we wouldn't have time to do that, I wanted to talk about the sections and the themes that you're looking at here. So, the first one uh, looks at uh, historical origins of the concept. You're placing male femininities in a longer scholarship tradition. You're mentioning here, for instance, works like Mother Camp, a book that I keep returning to every now and then because I'm interested in drag. Tell us about the decision to have this section revisit these texts, and how did you choose
3: these particular um, texts to include here? That's an excellent question. And um, so part of that was a decision that was was made both by us and um, by the folks over at NYU Press, because the folks over at NYU Press... We're not really excited about a volume of reprinted work. They really wanted original contributions, but we felt very strongly that the the current scholarly conversation about male femininities um, we couldn't really have that conversation without acknowledging this earlier work. Um, particularly, we really wanted to reprint um, Mother Camp, but that became a bit more difficult than than we um, anticipated. Um, and particularly uh, Peter Henan's work served as a a huge inspiration for the existing scholarly conversation about um, male femininities and so much of the the writings in our volume they were very much inspired by by Peter Hennan's um, early work and then see uh, winter Hahn if you want to talk a little bit about um, your relationship to um, the other work we included in that in that section, that'd be great because I think that you were instrumental in bringing that in. For
1: me, I think these readings tell us certain things. It tells us that um, these are not new ideas per se, that I think in academia there's a tendency for, for us to think that um, knowledge has no um, history. And definitely that's true. In the in the mainstream, right? So when we hear about, you know, uh, mainstream press talking about the proliferation of new gendered identities and new gendered ways of being, and new gendered ways of identifying oneself, they they make it seem as if these things are brand new that just uh, are popping up now because of political correctness, rather than these things having some historical roots, and that. We're finally our language or our ability to talk about these things is not finally catching up to people's lived realities, right? And so um, male feminities, just like any other ways of gendered expression or gendered being, have always been around, um, but that we simply were not um, able to articulate what these things meant for us and what these things meant for the people who were living them. And so I think these words tell us that um, there there was a history of this that shaped how it comes to be today, right? That new ways of of existing within a gendered space um, is not something that was just made out for the purpose of being politically correct, but rather that uh, we are now in in a more um, enlightened state, I think, as a society, that we can talk about alternative ways of being that have always been with us, but that, have, that has never been articulated quite the way that uh, the, the the readings in this collection articulates them.
2: Yes, and uh, as a historian who works with who investigates gender and sexuality, I really appreciated that that section, but. You opened the second section by asking what male femininities look like. So I'll borrow your question and ask you, how are the chapters that you include here
0: answering this question? Sure, I could talk about that. And this is a question that we grappled with as editors, because when you hear the word male femininities, you're going to have different associations based on your interpretations of what those constructs are. So if we're breaking them down and we talk about some of this in the introduction to the entire book and really delve into it in this section, is what does it mean to be male? Are we merely talking about the physical and physio- physiological aspects of maleness um, and the ways that maleness gets complicated when we think of non cissexual sexual people's bodies. So if we're talking about people who are coming from trans embodiment, intersex embodiment, physiological spaces, then what does male mean when we are looking at all of those aspects of the human body? And of course, femininities is a word that conveys a lot related to gender and gender expression and also to some degree sexuality. So when we are looking at these two words together, how does that map out into practice? And this section brings in several works that ask that question and attempt to answer it in some different ways. So we very purposefully didn't go out and explain male femininities as a specific concept that was universally applicable in a wide variety of contexts, but rather Uh, took a more of a queer theoretical approach and uh, embraced the many nuances of maleness and of in being feminine. So in this section, we have several takes on it. We've got somebody who's talking about what it means to configure male femininity. If you're talking about being a gay cisgender man who is a spin instructor, for example, um, participating in something that requires a lot of physical effort. Some might even call it a sport, uh, but is not really thought of as a masculine sport. Um, we also have somebody looking at gender nonconforming children and the ways they express and embody gender and gender expression. Um, and then also another chapter on feminine, straight, cisgender men and the ways those men are often read as gay because of the ways f- femininity mapped out on men's bodies is interpreted as a conflation with their queer sexuality. And so in this section, we're kind of playing with different ways of thinking about how we understand male femininities, and also ending this section with an acknowledgement that much of this depends on Western constructs of maleness and of femininity. And so the last chapter there looks at the ways that these Western constructs don't really map out so neatly on indigenous systems of gender and sexuality. And therefore, there are some inherent limitations in the ways that we're writing about it in this book, in this Western culture, and in thinking about these issues more broadly.
2: Yes, and while you're, you're talking about different uh, embodiments uh, here, and that's the, the, the theme of the next section. So this section, uh, as you write here, explores what it means to alter and cultivate bodies in ways that produce or project male femininities. I particularly like this idea that you uh, propose here, that the natural body is an illusion. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, whoever wants to take this question. But also, I wanted to ask Dr. Berkowitz to if they wouldn't mind talking a bit about uh, your contribution and why, as the section's introduction notes, it reveals the limits of subversion for male femininities.
3: Yeah, this is a, a great question, and thank you for asking about this. Um, I do want to quickly mention, though, when we talked a little bit about the inception of the book, um, why we chose to include um, such an assortment of disciplinary styles of different research methods and different mediums, right? We really wanted to um, to use mostly, as, as sociologists, right, we really wanted to use mostly ethnographic um, studies. Um, and then we also include a lot of different kinds of essays, but I think what is really unique to our volume is um, in addition to these more scholarly pieces, we also embed some personal voice essays and a comic and an interview. And in the section on embodying, right, we see this comic um, and the interview. And so I really love this section for multiple reasons. Um, One of which is that it really encompasses this um, really diverse assortment of disciplinary of disciplinary styles and and, um, different kinds of writing and communication. And so we have um, Casey Counselor uh, uses a comic uh, to explore um, their relationship with masculinity through the process of gender transition. And then in addition to that, we have an interview with renowned trans activist, Julia Serrano, and um, we include three empirical chapters in this section that explore what happens when men grow breasts, um, become pregnant and use uh, cosmetic enhancements like Botox and um, and that is the chapter that I wrote. And um, each of these um, empirical pieces explore like what these changes in embodiment might mean for how we make sense of male femininities. And as you mentioned, right each of these, a contribution she shows how the physiology of our bodies um is gendered by social processes and how are they, what our bodies that we we think are natural right are actually the product of um sustained gendered practices and ideologies and and right. so doing right they highlight the dialectical relationship between our bodies and culture and how our bodies are shaped by culture and how how our bodies are shaped by culture and shape culture They also highlight how bodies are both subject and object, right? Bodies are purposeful. Bodies are reflexive. They're also very much disciplined by social and cultural norms. Another really strong contribution of this section is how, as you said, the readings belly any existence of a natural body, right? Unmarked by cultural discourses, collective norms, technological interventions, Um, this whole notion of a natural body. is illusory um, and is um, the very idea of natural is, is temporal, it's shifting, it's socially constructed, right? And we live in a reality of gender-affirming surgeries, assisted reproductive technologies, cosmetic enhancements, and all of this expose um, how technology encroaches onto human bodies um, and expose the, the just illusory distinction between nature and between culture. And um, if you're looking particularly at, the um, essay I wrote on Botox, I explore a series of advertisements um, from mostly medical spas and um, aesthetic centers um, marketing Botox to men. And um, as I show, men, men may only make up like, you know, 5% of all Botox users. Um, but um, more and more, uh, folks are realizing that we can um, capitalize off men's insecurities with um, their bodies. And so um, in order to market Botox for men, what I found was it really um, had to be sort of like butched up, right? We see a lot of like burgers and Botox or baseball and Botox or whatever, you know, alliteration we can use um, that is like hyper masculine. Um, And also all of the uh, marketing, some materials um, sort of uh, presuppose heterosexuality. um, And um, they talk about like, you know, the family man, assuming families are heteronormative. Um, um, In order to market Botox for men, which is like a hyper feminine cosmetic activity, you really have to highlight the fact that this is um, not something feminine. Basically, what I'm finding is that um, when you look at ads um, targeting um, men, Botox ads targeting men, right, They um, these ads, right, are not pioneering new definitions of masculinities, right, and they're not destabilizing, right, or denaturalizing any existing binary gender system. And so what I find is that these advertisements reveal the limits of subversion for some um, embodied male femininities. So even though men are engaging in these, um, this body modification uh, that is uh, very much constructed as feminine um, because these ads are um, super hyper-masculine, right? Um, they emphasize heteronormativity and heterosexuality and, um, and this sort of normative um, ideal family. Um, they very much highlight the uh, limits of subversion for embodied male femininities, and I think that this essay, more so than so many in the volume, um, really solidifies this: that even though um, men are engaging in um, engaging in feminine practices um, and body modifications um, and performances, that this doesn't necessarily mean that this is subversive, and and I, it can even reify right the gender binary.
2: Yes, yes. And as, as you noted, right, that, uh, this section has some interesting, uh, this has an interesting diversity in terms of style and, and in form. Um, all of the book and all of the sections resonate with me as a, as a researcher, as a teacher. But this section also resonated with me as a journal editor because um, I am co-editor of the Journal of Festival Studies. And that's something we've been seeking is how to have these dialogues, these interesting conversation, bringing in different knowledges in different formats. So I really appreciated how you all did that in this section. And the next section, it deals with, it engages with, as you point here, one of the most enduring concepts in contemporary gender studies, and that is gender performativity. So I wanted to ask you more broadly and anybody who wants to take this question, how the chapters are dealing with gender performance and performativity. We have, of course, some chapters that deal with drag. That's something that I think anybody expected. We expected from a book that deals with male femininity. But the other chapters also show, uh, as you write here, other forms of performing male femininities that are less deliberate. Again, I don't know who wants to tackle the the question about the the larger, the chapter or oh, the section in general, but I would also ask uh, Dr. Han and Dr. Windsor, would you mind also briefly introducing your pieces in this section?
1: Uh, I could talk about the pieces um, brought me together. <coughs> um, and as you said, right, that there, there was this expectation of drag, but... For me, uh, and for the for the rest of us, actually, we want to think about what it means to perform a gender, right? And and when is that performance uh, subject subjectively aware and subjectively not aware that these are these are that what we're doing is actually performing gender? And even within that performance, I I don't think that it's so cut and dry, right, to be able to say. Uh, this is th- these sort of acts are performative and these sort of acts are just performances. And so um, my piece w- was looking at both the act of performing gender, knowing that you are taking on the role of, of a woman as a self-identified gay man, but at the same time, doing it from a place where you are already seen as being feminine outside of the act of engaging in drag. So what does that mean when uh, you, you as a racial group is seen as sort of embodying femininity in your everyday life, and then using that embodiment to actually perform um, a, a an exaggerated version of femininity for an audience that would otherwise not be uh, receptive to femininity as being performative, but seem to be incredibly accepting and receptive to femininity when it's actively performed. Um, so I wanted to sort of trouble that line of performance and performativity show that it's it's not as clear cut as. Uh, we might think that it it could be, or or that it is.
2: Yes. Uh, Dr. Wins?
0: Yeah, and my essay in here is one of those personal narratives that we have included throughout the book, at least one in every section. And here I'm talking about something that was a form of drag, It was more of a form of being a drag king, but in a context of radical cheerleading. And in that performance, the person who performed with me as what we called a cheer boy uh, was doing so in a way of performing a feminine version of masculinity or a feminine version of being a drag king. And so for... This piece, you know, a lot of those questions about what does it mean to be male, what does it mean to be feminine, are called into question because here you have two people who are female assigned at birth, who are masculine presenting in their everyday life, who are queer, who are trans, performing a specific kind of gender presentation that is has physical features of masculinity put on and performed, but is also performing feminine gender expression through the body um, and through mannerisms and statements. So uh, that's kind of, you know, it it was a place of thinking about what this idea of configuring male feminities means in terms of the ways we play with performance.
2: The next uh, section deals with intimacies. And so I wanted to ask you, how does male femininity affect intimacies in the different contexts that are presented here? Or um, how being or being perceived as feminine is devalued in a sexual economy? Um, I'm sorry for the multi-part question. I can break it down later. But I'm also, I'm interested in in how you know being perceived uh, as feminine m- might uh, be devalued in a sexual economy, but also how, as you show here, life for for feminine men is not without joy. This this aspect of joy that you uh, that I see here also uh, is, is very interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I could talk about that as well. And when we're thinking about intimacies you know, a lot of it has to do with sex and sexuality. But as you can see in the chapters in this section, there are, of course, many ways to experience intimacy as a person who is embodying a male femininity. And as a construct, femininity in our society is continually devalued. And this really gets into focus when we're looking at gay men's sexualities or queer men's sexualities. And several of the essays here talk about that. Specifically, Terrell Wenders "Assume the position bottom shaming among black gay men and the ways that bottoming an act of receiving, being the receiving partner, whatever that means, of anal sex um, is thought of as less than than the top, the person who is the so-called active partner who is doing the penetrating. Um, and there's, of course, plenty of arguments that can, you know, point to the ways that uh, receiving is is an act of strength and uh, endurance and, and other kinds of words that we typically associate with masculinity. But because it's associated with Femininity and womanhood, people who enjoy that and people who are interested in having that kind of sex in gay men's communities are seen as less than. And the ways that that plays out in people being able to find sexual partners can lead to some despair. Like our first uh, poem in this section talks about Lester Eugene Meyer's Unloved, um, But as you noted, it's not all doom and gloom. And there are plenty of people who in bottoming, in being a more feminine sexual partner, in taking um, a less uh, active role in terms of uh, sexual expression would see this as a place of pleasure and joy and something that is worth celebrating, even if a broader community stigmatizes it or devalues it. And another place where we might look at feminine expression in a sexual space as a space of joy is in Mead Shipper's essay that asks if polyamorous men are embodying male femininity in the ways that they are, as part of a poly community, expected to eschew emotions of jealousy and not feel obligated to own a single partner or to express any kind of ownership feelings towards that person in a poly space and the ways that kind of sharing of sexual partners or being open to your partner having other partners is not viewed as a threat to one's masculinity but is associated as a A feminine quality that everybody is encouraged to embrace in for a poly relationship to be successful getting this idea of what has been called compersion feeling joy in someone else's sexual pleasure with someone else rather than jealousy and so if this is a space that people are interested in navigating that that is ultimately for them a source of joy a source of pleasure.
2: Exactly. So then uh, the l- last chapter here talks about oh, the last section, the chapters in the last section, um, talk about uh, the way male femininities are experienced in social institutions. And I'm interested in, in this idea, I would like um, one of you to comment on this, uh, the idea that all institutions are gendered and the role of intersectionality in this process.
3: Yes, I can tackle that. So, um in this final section of the book, right, we have um a collection of different perspectives about how male femininities are constructed and enacted in the social institutions, primarily of family and work, right? And right just as with gender, right institutions are socially constructed even though they might seem as they're, you know, unmutable or immutable and unwavering, right? But as we know as sociologists, institutions are flexible and malleable and they respond to social change. And each of the readings in this section in very different ways, right? They show how institutions can both enable and constrain our practices and expressions of male feminities. Um, and they highlight the extent to which social institutions um, are very much gendered, right? Particularly family and work, right? Gender is used as an organizing principle in the ways that that women and men, transgender and non-binary folks, are channeled into different and often um, unequally right, valued um, social spaces. In terms of um, in terms of each contribution, um, we have Josh um, Adair who writes a personal essay about how his experience at his partner's funeral is um, how his his, his griefing experience, right? And this elucidates how public displays of non-heterosexual grief and mourning, right, are disciplined in these heteronormative spaces. Um, we also have a, a retrospective study um, by uh, um, Graciela Sosaronsky-Poe, um, who looks at, her own personal experiences, and she brings in interviews with parents raising gender nonconforming boys. Um, and she reflects on how these parents um, traversed these very, like, once famili- un- unfamiliar waters, right? And how that um, many of these parents like, ultimately um, became radical translators of the gender order, right? And then we have um, two other, imp- more like traditionally empirical, like ethnographic studies, right? We have um, uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Randalls um, who um, closed out the book with an analysis of how a group of low-income fathers of color wrestled with messages about masculinity and femininity and, um, and engaged fathering. and then um, another empirical study of um, how gender nonconforming firefighters negotiate masculinity on the fire ground, right and around the fire. House, um, and so what we're finding here is that um, in terms of looking at um, in terms of looking at these institutions through an intersectional lens, right, we can see how different intersecting inequalities, right, differentially um, influence the gender choices available to social actors and the consequences of these choices. And each of the readings in this section show how social class, how race, and how social sexuality intersects with gender to constitute very different um, expressions of male femininity. I also want to point out that, um, like, regardless of social class or institutional context, um, the readings in this section highlight, again, how femininity in boys and in men incites discomfort in others, right? So so Saransky-Poe and um, Adair and... um, Roscoe Scarborough's work particularly show um how different social actors police and uh discipline male femininity within different kinds of institutions right but um just as uh Dr. Windsor mentioned right it's not all doom and gloom okay um and I think that um within each of these essays we can see that um, there are new opportunities for social change and for gender resistance, right? And we see new research on um, on families and on um, particularly parents with gender creative children and, um, and research on um, workplace culture, right? And these show how um, workplace discrimination can be interrupted by the actions of defined actors and how, looking at uh, um Poe's work, we can see how um, parents can become activists um, for social change, and how even though institutions can resist change, right, um, they're not unchangeable, okay, um, with even a small number of defiant actors, whether they be parents, whether they be children, right, whether they be um, our workplace uh, colleagues, right? Um, as they begin and we begin to question the existing gender order, these institutional norms can they can unravel and they can open up emergent opportunities for a new generation of folks, hopefully our students, right, who can then uh, do gender differently. Definitely.
2: But before we go, would you, all of you, some of you, be in, be willing to share? what you've been working on since uh, this book was published or since you finished this book, or what are you working on next? Do you have any new current projects you would, wouldn't would mind sharing with us?
1: Um, I'm actually working on two uh, current projects. Um, one is on um, uh, how people of color create space in um, within uh, gay communities. And that began with, trying to look at racism, um, and the way that racism gets negotiated in gay, gay communities, but, uh, involved into, um, a project that, that would much rather look at the way that queers of color create their own space rather than try simply to, uh, join existing spaces or, or areas or, or groups. Um, another one I'm doing is looking at whiteness in in uh, the lives of gay gay men, particularly, and how whiteness structures the way that gay men uh, construct a sense of self.
0: Well, one thing I've been working on, actually, is a new position where I am the executive officer for the Society for the Study of Social Problems. And as a national professional organization for sociologists and many other affiliated disciplines, as well as those who work in applied sectors, a lot of my current work has been thinking about the ways that uh, scholar activists can use research in pursuit of social justice. So that's kind of like my administrator hat. And with research, I am working on developing a book based on some research I did and ethnography I did in a medical center that looked at the meaning-making processes of people who work with body parts and non-living bodies. So the ways that workers who are in the morgue, who are in gross anatomy labs, and who are in surgery pathology rooms interact with those kinds of bodies, some of which has to do with gender and sexuality, but it is definitely a shift into a new direction for me as well.
3: And... Um... Um, I'm just so excited that Dr. Windsor is going to be writing about this topic. It's so fascinating. Yes. Um, I am working on um, piggybacking off of my earlier work on Botox. Um, I'm looking at young, primarily women's experiences with um, cosmetic enhancements um, like Botox and dermal filler, particularly looking at women in their 20s who are using these enhancements quite early, um, and who then um, ultimately become lifetime consumers. Um, and I'm looking at the intersection of beauty culture and social media and injectables. Um, and some I've also been looking at lots of um, social media data, particularly on um, Instagram and TikTok, and how. Uh, these messages are marketed to, to women in their 20s as preventative aesthetics.
2: I'm interested in all of it, all of your researches. So I'm, I'm excited uh, to see when it, when, uh, when there's something for us to, to read, to look at. And um, again, if you have any new books on any of your pr- fascinating projects, please come back to talk to us about it. So, Dr. Berkowitz, Dr. Windsor, Dr. Hahn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having us.
3: Thank you so much for having us. And to
2: the folks listening, thank you for tuning in to another episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado. Until next time.